we have spent a lot of time over the past year considering this message of Matthew, the Jewish man, writing to the Jewish people about the Jewish Messiah. All along the way, Matthew has been proving that Jesus is who he has claimed to be. Proving that Jesus is their Messiah. That he has the lineage of Messiah. He had the the introduction as the Messiah. He had the herald. His herald was John the Immerser, John the Baptist. He he gave the proofs that he was Messiah. He he declared it from God's word. He he healed people. He he raised them from the dead. He calmed the sea. He he cast demons out of people. And then he entered into the city to enter to begin this final phase, if you would, of his quote-unquote earthly ministry. I hate to say that because he's still reigning and he's still working and he's still ministering to us in the earthly realm. But him being there on the earth at that time for that purpose, it was now culminating. Everything was coming to this moment. He was chosen to be the lamb. The people didn't realize that. But he was coming, and on the tenth day of Nisan, as he entered in, they cried out that he was the one who was coming in the name of the Lord. And yet, here we are four days later, and they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We looked at that last week as part of his trials. But coming right out of those trials, then, that he had his his dinner with his disciples, his Passover dinner, had it one day early, so that knowing that he was going to be the Passover lamb, so that night he goes out and he prays with his disciples and asks his disciples to pray with him because he is just has anxious his anxiety even unto death and he needs them to pray, and so they fall asleep. He gets arrested. He's taken to to Caiaphas's palace. They try him there, send him to Pilate. He tries him. Pilate realizes that he is he's righteous, he's innocent, he's not there's nothing in him that's worthy of death. And yet it's just I was watching the Jesus movie a little bit again this week. You know, I've watched it a lot actually over this past year as I'm looking for clips to put up on the screen and stuff like that, and I get to kind of watch this over and over and over again. And just what hit me again is just the whole thing of Pilate. Declaring, I, I, I'm bringing him out so you know that he's innocent. And so therefore, I'll have him scourged. It just doesn't make any sense. He's innocent, so I'll have him scourged for you. You what? And yet Jesus bore up to all of that. Because he knew it was for this moment for which he came. Before the foundations of the world were laid, before God ever made the, the, the heavens and the earth, before the darkness covered the face of the deep, before Genesis 1 1, God had already determined 
that he would come and he would die on a cross. Do you get that? I mean, the magnitude of this moment. He didn't have to make the, 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 the earth. He didn't have to make the world. But he did. Kids, from a year ago, summer program, why did God, Isaiah 46, 18, 46, 18, 45, 18. 45, 18, good job. Why did God make the earth? What was his purpose? So it would be inhabited. He created the earth with a purpose, so that it would be inhabited. And sin didn't take him by surprise. He knew when he made us that we would sin. And so he already had planned, already had purposed what he would do. Again, we talk about this a lot. He could choose anything he wanted to, but he didn't. Then he made trees. I mean, did you ever think about that? He made the tree that he was going to what? Hang on. He chose the people to be the nation that would crucify him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. This is the stage in which that glory is going to be revealed. I shared in Sunday school a little bit um, about the testing. God tests us. Psalm 11 talks about that too, how he tests men and he tests his righteous ones. But in a sense, this platform, this stage that we're going to look at today is the testing of God. 1 Corinthians 10 says that God is faithful and that he will not allow you to be tested, troubled, beyond what you are able to bear, but will with the troublesome situation also make a way to what? Escape. Not that you need to, because he won't trouble you, he won't test you, he won't try you, he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to what? To bear. And this is his moment. Have you ever run into those troublesome situations which you haven't been able to bear up with? That you've kind of failed at? And as I mentioned last week, Satan knows in the spiritual world, in the spiritual realm, there is this, this thing that's going on in that if, if Christ offers this sacrifice, he's what? He's doomed. He has to get Jesus to fail, to falter, to sin. The intensification of all this is it's going to grow, it's going to build. And Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. He was troubled, tempted, Hebrews tells us, in every way, such as 
we are, finish it out, yet without sin. And as we come to this moment of the cross, is an incredible, mind-boggling moment for me. How the eternal God, how the creator of the heavens and the earth, I mean, it's mind-boggling enough for me that, that he could become flesh. How he who created all, whom all things were created, that he could become flesh and dwell among us. That, that's mind-boggling enough. But then that he will die. Next week, we have to wait all week for next week. Next week's the what? The resurrection. That's the glory. It's the really the victory, the total Today we look at the cross. But the resurrection is meaningless if the payment hasn't been made. Do you get it? And that's, so everything comes to this very moment. This is, this is like the height of everything. This is the crescendo. The resurrection is thrilling, is exciting. It's going to prove that what happened on the cross was accepted and was real. Lazarus was resurrected. The widow of Nain's son was resurrected. How come we don't celebrate them? Because their resurrections don't save me. Do you get it? It's what today's focus is about that is so crucial. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. And he is not the propitiation for your sins only, but also for the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Do you get it? This is an earthquake that hit the whole world. But the world doesn't get it. All their sins are paid for. But they don't get it. In this time of his crucifixion, we're going to focus on three parts. I'm, not, I'm trying not to get bogged down into the details of it, but to, I don't want to lose the, the, of the, the vastness of what we're looking at by focusing on a detail. First, we have the, the derision of Christ. That he was mocked by, first of all, the soldiers. Consider everything that he went through. They stripped him, they mocked him, they spat on him, they struck him, they crucified him. Then they cast lots for his robes. But again, as we're going to look at numerous times in here, Psalm 22, this was all recorded prophetically by David hundreds of years before it ever happened. Psalm 22, verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so as Chuck read our, our portion of Scripture this morning, you see how all these things, they play out, they come to pass. And so the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, not just the Jewish temple soldiers, but the Roman soldiers, they take him, and they, and they begin to scourge him. Again, as I mentioned earlier, as... On the, at the heels of Pilate saying, he is what? 
He's innocent. He's innocent. And yet he cowtails to the, to the whims of the, of the people in order to give them what they want. But it intensifies. It's one thing for the world to mock you. Oh, I forgot Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. There are just so many verses of prophecy about it. But then he was mocked by the leaders themselves. So not just by the world, but then the same leaders who had handed him over. They followed him to the cross. I mean, it's one thing to hand him over and to be done with it. But they went to the cross to make sure that it was really done. To gloat in it. To, I mean, don't you hate when people just kind of gloat? What's your reaction to that? So let's start back at the beginning with the soldiers. How do you respond when people beat you up? Especially when you're innocent. I mean, we're not just talking about beating you up verbally. We're talking about beating you up physically. They spat on him. They hit him. They punched him. They whipped him. They threw a, a, a cross on his back. We'll talk about all that in just a moment. But now the leaders come and they're mocking him. Psalm 22, stated ahead of time. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me and they shoot out the lip. Do you note that it even says that? And they shake the head. So as, as um, Chuck was reading, it says that when they, they were mocking him, that they actually sh- they wagged their heads. Verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Wagging their heads. Ah, I mean, just a little detail. Ah, you know, do you ever see people do that? Ah, you know, it's like this is, adds to it. Ah, you know, but all the way back in the Psalms, it's recording it. They shake their head saying he trusted in Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Who's the mocking really at? Yahweh. Oh, he says he trusts in Yahweh. Doesn't that sound like the world to you? And what do we do? Do we buckle? Well, well I, don't, I don't really mean it that way. I mean, I, uh, and we start to compromise, and we start to backpedal, and we start to, because we don't want to be, what, crucified. <laughs> we don't want to be put on a cross. Put on a cross? You're innocent. That doesn't make any sense. I've shared about Balthasar Hubmeyer quite a few times over my years. So if you, hopefully if you've been under me, this Balthasar Hubmeyer doesn't sound like a, like a who? So, so say the name, Balthasar Hubmeyer. Anyways, go ahead, you got it. So Balthasar, he was back in the Reformation period, and he was one of the Reformers. But he claimed Christ, but he was arrested, and he was put on the rack. You know, not the cross, but the rack. You know, and it's a lot of fun being put on the rack. You know, you get to grow a little bit, you know, kind of stretched out. But it's not your torso. It's more your arms and your legs. So you start to kind of get longer. Anyways, and so you can get off the rack if you 
recant if you deny Christ. So twice, Balthasar Hubmeyer recanted. He recanted, he was freed. He got, went out, and he started proclaiming Christ again. He was arrested, he was put on the rack. You can, if you recant, he recanted, he got off the rack. The third time, he went out and he proclaimed Christ again. He got arrested. The third time, he was put on the rack, and he died. If my God did this for me, how can I not do it for him? There are countless stories. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read, read about the, the, the saints of, of the Reformation period. The ones who were actually being killed by reformers. It's amazing how many Anabaptists were, were slaughtered by, by Martin Luther and, and Philip Melanchthon who came after him. Cutting out their tongues. Burning them at the stake. And they still proclaim Christ. If my Lord and my God did this for me, is this such a small sacrifice that I can make for him? But how do we respond? He was mocked by the robbers. <laughs> this one's really kind of really amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's like we're intensifying this, this battle here, right? I mean, you almost expect it from the soldiers. You're kind of like, oh, the leaders, you guys. But then you got two guys, on your, one on your left, one on your right, who are what? They're bad guys. They're criminals. They deserve this. Pilate didn't say they were innocent, therefore kind of put them out there too. I like the Buddy Davis song, though. One was left and one was right. Because in the midst of this whole thing, Matthew doesn't describe this, but we read it in Mark and Luke, the one, after they mock him, the one turns and says what? He says to the other one, he says, wait, 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 stop. We're guilty of this. We deserve this. But he has done nothing to deserve this. And then he turns to Jesus and he says an amazing statement. What is that? Remember me. Lord, remember me when you come, when you come into your kingdom. Talking about conversion experiences, like on the dime, conversion experience. He's mocking Jesus, and then God gets a hold of his heart. I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was watching Jesus look down. I don't know whether it was Jesus was there, and he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them. And did he do a sweeping glance at this guy? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you that what? Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing thing. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I don't want to get caught into that because we, we can really go into a whole lot of theology in there. What a marvelous moment. But, but before that moment, these guys are spitting on Jesus too. Not, not literally spitting, but you know, throwing the curses and mocking him. The battle's intensifying, intensifying, intensifying. 
And yet Jesus, again, is bearing up under hupomeno. Bearing up under the load that is being placed upon him. And not is he just bearing up under it. He is relishing in it. I want you to think about that. It's one thing if he had just kept his mouth shut and bore up with it. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking deprecating thoughts toward people, and, and, but I'm keeping my what? My mouth shut. I'm not letting it out. But Jesus had already said in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 when he was going through the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder, but I say unto you, if you call your brother empty-headed, racha, you have what? Committed murder. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even lust on a woman in your heart, you've what? Committed adultery. So bring that into right now. He's on the cross, even if he is holding his mouth shut, the best that Bob could do. I'm still what? I'm still thinking it. (laughs) Do you get it? And that's the same as doing it. I'm murdering these people. Jesus was tempted in every way such as I am, yet he what? He didn't sin. He loved the people. He loved the people. Now this isn't the wishy-washy, gooshy-gooshy, before you get married love. So I, always, I love marital counseling. So I always warn people that that ooshy-gooshy, you know, kind of like the tingles is going to wear off. For some people, it may wear off in 24 hours. Some people may wear off in seven years, whatever. But there's a wear-off period, you know, where all of a sudden it's like that the ooshy-gooshy goes away, and now you've got to decide whether you what? Whether you're committed to them. It's a committed love. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of your will. Okay? That's a Don Francisco song. Anyways, so, but it's a great line. It's a great statement. Okay? It's not a feeling. It wasn't ooshy-gooshy love that held Jesus to the cross. Anybody guess what word I'm going to tell you it is? It was his chesed. It was his chesed. His faithful, loving kindness to the objects of his covenant. That held him there. So we get it translated mercy, we get it translated faithful, we get it translated as loving kindness. That's what held him to that cross. He was committed to the process. He was committed to his creation. He loved us beyond what we could ever imagine. And in that great love, yes, he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them. They haven't got a clue. They don't know. What they're doing. Is that your first thought? When people irritate you? It needs to be. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus 
who being in the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, who being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory and praise of God. One day they'll recognize that Yahweh did come. He was in their midst. He's going to come and every eye is going to see him. And on his thigh is going to be written, Chesed Nemet, faithful and true. And they're going to recognize that Yahweh did come. He was in their midst. And they rejected him. And now he's coming a second time to reign with a rod of iron over the nations. That'll be the millennial reign of Christ. The derision of Christ. But even more with this intensification is the, the alienation of Christ. Psalm 22, David starts off with this line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Again, I mentioned it last week. I think this is the moment when that what was causing Jesus to, to, to have such anxiety. This is the cup that he was going to to drink from. The cup that, there was no way John and James could drink from this cup. Are you able to drink from the cup that I'm able to drink? Yeah, sure, sure. We can. No, you, you haven't even got a clue. The cup. Jesus is about to drink this cup of God's wrath. Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. Who determined that there would be wrath in the end on the nations? Who determined that there would be this wrath for those who do not receive the forgiveness of sins? God. Jesus. Who concocted concocted this cup of poison that he was going to drink? Himself. And he was going to drink it. Straight down, all of it. Not a drop left. In this very moment. So that I don't have to. You don't have to. Nobody in the world has to. Face the wrath of God. So why do people face the wrath of God? Because they reject the gift that God gave for them. I mean, the fullness of everything was happening in this very moment. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a moment. I, I can't explain how this moment happens in eternity. 
A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And before Genesis 1-1, there was no time, and so there was eternity. And that all boggles my brain. I've been reading a book on quantum, the quantum enigma lately. And, I mean, I just I, I love quantum physics and, and all that kind of stuff and the time relativity. And, and anyways, it's, it's so cool from the... I mean, I'm reading this book, man, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, you guys don't get it. It's an enigma because you won't accept God. They have capital N nature in it. Because nature is their God. And it's an enigma. It's a paradox. It's a mystery. They can't get it. Why is it this and this? And they can't get it because God is light. <laughs> and you can't comprehend light because you can't comprehend God. Get God, you'll get light, dude. It's all right. It's all good. It's kind of fun. Einstein. He knew there was a God, but he couldn't accept God. Even as a Jew. Figure that one. So he's the one who coined with nature. You can worship because nature is God. Because you can't have a God. We know there can't be God. <laughs> we don't want there to be God, so there's not a God. Aha, you're not there. Ugh. And yet at this very moment, Jesus, in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father turns his face away from the Son. And it was proclaimed hundreds of years ahead of time that it would happen. The answer question is, though, why? Why would it happen? Because of the holiness of God. Do you got to understand? So right there in verse 3, then in Psalm 22, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. God is holy, and he's not just holy, but as we know from Isaiah 6, verse, um, verse 1, the, the, the year the king Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and, the, and the seraphim flew, and they had the six wings, and two with two they covered their eyes, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they did, they did fly. And they cried out one to another, what? Holy, holy, holy. Could you imagine the resounding what it sounded like? Holy, holy, holy. These are warriors crying us out. Nothing personal against, you know, Guys who sing higher or whatever, but you know, it wasn't holy, holy, holy. I mean, it's holy. I mean, it's just bouting it out. And, that, and, and, and it's shaking. The smoke is filling it. Because in the Hebrew, if you say something in a regular sense, it's just holy. If you say that something's so good, better, and best, so that's good. If it's better, it's holy, holy. If it's the bestest of the bests, it's then holy, holy, holy. That's why Jesus always said, truly, truly, I say to you. Because he's saying, I re- this really is what? This really is true. Holy, holy, holy. And when he saw the holy God, Isaiah fell at his face because he realized that he was what? He was undone. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And unclean lips were enough to what? Disqualify him from being in the presence of God. Not just disqualify him, but what? What did he expect to happen at this moment? What did he expect to happen? Die, destroy, utter destruction. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the Lord. But God in His grace, symbolically, has an angel go to the throne, grab the, the, the fiery coal with the tongs, and touches his lips, touches the place of his sin, to sear it, to, to, to clean it. The Son, part of the Godhead, knows that the Godhead is what? Holy, holy, holy. And that when he becomes then sin, he can no longer be found in the place of the Godhead. In that one moment, I can't explain this, there is this alienation that he has from God. Just as Paul talks about how you used to be, you were Gentiles in the flesh. How you used to be separated from the the promises of Israel. You were alienated in your hearts and in your minds. But now you have come to know Christ Jesus. No longer then are you what? Alienated. You are now not alienated. You are, what's the other word? Silas. What are you? Uh, Adopted. You belong. Right? You used not to be alone. You were alienated. You were, you were apart. You were rejected. You were nothing. Now you're adopted. He, Christ, was alienated so you could be adopted. How cool is that? He took the separation so I can have the fellowship. He who knew no sin became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. Leviticus 1 talks about the sin sacrifice. I'm going to get in details just real quickly here because I don't want you to miss this part. Because, again, Jesus fulfilled so much Old Testament prophecy okay, and declarations. In Leviticus chapter 1, we read about the sin sacrifice. The beginning part, we're going to go to Leviticus 4 here in a moment. But in Leviticus 1, we're told, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When one of you brings an offering, that's just a general term for offering. There are numerous words in the Hebrew for an offering or sacrifice. Okay? So words are important, um, and God uses certain words for a reason. So it's a korban. Okay? And so it's a general offering. So when someone brings an offering to Yahweh... You shall bring your offering, that's still Corban, of the livestock, of the herd and the flock, if, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice, on Olah, okay, of the herd, let him offer a male without what? Blemish, okay? A male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will. Did Jesus offer it of his own free will? Yes. No one forced him to bring this offering. At the door of the tabernacle, meeting before Yahweh, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. In Leviticus chapter 4 is where we read about then the sin sacrifices. And the whole chapter is about sin sacrifices, okay? So we're not going to go through the whole chapter. But I want you to look quickly at the first seven verses of Leviticus 4. It says, Now, 
Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of Yahweh and anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, let, then let him offer to Yahweh for his sins, which he has sinned, a young bull that goes back to Leviticus chapter 1. Okay, that's why we brought that out, because this is going to be a burnt sacrifice. Okay, so it's going to be a young bull, but that the term young bull means that it's, it's going to be a what? A male. Okay, it's going to be a male without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle meeting before Yahweh, lay his hands on the heads of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. Laying your hands on the head of the bull, okay, was, thank you, is transferring your guilt, your sin, for what you've done to the bull. Then when the bull is killed, you are slaughtering your sin, not just your payment. He's, say again? And your son, that's right. Yes. God did it. Anyways, so, so at that moment, what happens then is that my guilt, my sin, what I've done is now on that bull. That bull now, when he is killed, he doesn't just pay my penalty. He actually is, destroys my sin. Do you get it? Until when? Until I sin again. And so we, we're not going to go to Hebrews 10, but that's on your sermon note sheet. You can go there, Hebrews 9 and 10. That, that's why the, the priests never sat down. They continually offered daily the sins for the people. But we're told in Hebrews 9 and 10 that Jesus, when he offered his sin... He what? Or he offered his sin. Sorry, he offered his sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of the Father because it was done. So anyways, then verse 5, Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood, bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle some of the blood seven times before Yahweh in front of the veil, and the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, of sweet incense before Yahweh, which is at the tabernacle meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt, of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle meeting. So, during this sacrifice, this sin sacrifice, there were certain things that had to be accomplished. Did you read them all? It wasn't just killing the bull. It wasn't just that it being burnt. But there was things to be done with the, the blood. Now, a little aside, it's interesting, there's four verbs here. There's... There's dip, sprinkle, anoint, and pour. Just a little aside, those are the four modes of baptism today. In the Greek translation of this, only one of those words is the word baptizo. It's the word to dip. It's not sprinkle. It's not anoint. It's not pour. We'll deal with that whenever we talk about baptism. You might or you might not, David. David's actually going to preach on that passage, so you don't have to go there. But... When I talk to people about the importance of baptism, it comes right back to this. He could have chosen any word he chose to. So, but note the four things that happen here with the blood. Okay? So, Jesus, think about the process now of Jesus. Okay? So, he is scourged. What happens when he is scourged? Yeah, he bleeds. Yeah, I don't want to focus a whole lot on this, but the Roman cat of nine tails was not a pleasant thing. They had stones and, and, and uh, glass placed in the, in, the, in the ends of them. So, when... Say so when they when they when they hit they ripped okay and so the body he had forty lashes his body would have been totally flailed open we know that from how anxious he was the night before and then from that beating because he's not able to, to carry the cross the, the the whole way he falls right and they grab Simon of Cyrene all right and they make him carry the cross the rest of the way okay Jesus isn't able to do that and so while he's carrying this cross then. 
up to, up to, to the hill, what starts happening? His blood is what? First of all, it's dipped, right? And then it's sprinkled, if you would, on this altar, okay? And then they lay him on the altar, the cross. And what do they do? They pierced his hands and his feet. We saw that from Psalm 22, right? Okay. And what do you think happens when they, when they place the, that railroad spike? That's really more what it was like. It wasn't like a little, you know, taking a little, you know, gun nail. You know, it was putting a railroad spike there. What do you think happens? Why do you think they put it here? Well, to hold them because there's the bones there. But what else is right here? One of your main arteries. Okay? And so then they go between the feet. So when it happens, then each the horns of the altar are being what? Anointed with the oil. At the very end, what happens? The soldiers come to make sure that they are dead. When they come to Jesus, exactly right, they pierce him. When they come to Jesus, they find that he's already dead. But just to make sure, they take the spear and they do the heart thrust up underneath the ribs. Sorry if this is gory. But then we read about the blood and the water that comes down. Why was it important that blood and water came out? Brian? No, no. So we'll get to the base of the altar, but why blood and water? He was dead. It was already separating. Details. Details are important. He's already dead. But, yes, where we're going is then the blood, the remainder of the blood, is poured at the base of the altar, fulfilling the sin sacrifice. They didn't know what they were doing. Father, forgive them, for they... No, not what they do, but the whole long way they are fulfilling your plan. How exciting. For he made him who knew no sin to what? To be, to be, not to become, not to imitate, but to be sin for us that we might become. We are in a process. It's called sanctification. I can't, don't have time to get into all that, but it's important on the verbs here. Positionally, he became sin over a process, we become his righteousness. That's called sanctification. So the people who say that they are righteous right now and they never sin, that's not true. It's a process. God gave it to us. Finally, we get into this most important part, the triumph of Christ. His cry of victory, we get from John 19. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. One word in the Greek, but has profound meaning. It is finished. It is completed. It is perfected. It has been paid for. It's the word that would be used for your last payment on your mortgage. Okay, forget the fact that the government says things today on your property, okay? It is done. There are no more what? Payments to be made. You don't have to work for Anything. There is no payments that have been made. He made it for you. And we read that he cried out, Tetelestai, and then he what? Then he gave up his spirit. He didn't die. He gave up his spirit. Do you get it? There's an important difference. This was a decision that he was making to be the sacrifice. He had fulfilled the sacrifice. He had fulfilled the prophecies. And then he left. The signs of victory. 
the tearing of the veil, the quaking of the earth, the raising of the dead, the declaration of the centurion, the tearing of the veil from top to bottom, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, signifying that what? God had accepted the sacrifice. God had destroyed it. What's significant about the tearing of the veil? Good, okay. No, I wasn't going there, but yes, that's awesome. It was too tall for anybody just to stand up there and reach and start ripping it. Good. So who was tall enough? God. That's exactly right. That God was the one who was making this plan, and God was ripping it. So what was the big deal about the veil being ripped? You know? Say it again. You could see the holy holies. You can now... You can enter into the presence of God without any mediator. There's only one mediator between God and men, that is the man Christ Jesus. And now we enter in through the veil, through the blood of Christ, with confidence, with boldness. How exciting is this? Because God did it. If that wasn't enough for you, there's the quaking of the earth. Do you understand that Jesus is dying at, at the ninth hour, okay, which is... Um, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right when, in the temple, they are about to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Could you imagine the mayhem that just happened at this moment? They're bringing in the lamb. They're getting everything ready. They're getting ready to do this thing. And then all of a sudden, there's a massive earthquake all over Jerusalem. The, 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 the veil was ripped into dead people, known dead people, Lots of them start going to visit everybody. I wonder if anybody showed up in the temple. Was Anna and Simeon there? You know, Anna and Simeon, they were there with the birth. I'd love to think that they were there in the temple. They came back to the temple. And they're like, ah! Could you, I mean, could you imagine what's going on at this moment? I don't think there were um, Passover lambs being sacrificed right now. And then the Roman centurion says the obvious. I don't think I've ever seen this one, but I think John Wayne played that guy in, in, in some part. I think John Wayne actually played the Roman centurion. And he says, truly, this must have been the Son of God. I always wondered about this Roman centurion. Is this the guy in Caesarea, you know, that Peter came to visit? I mean, just, you never wonder how do characters come around and stuff like that? It's the obvious. And yet the leaders, they're not there. We'll talk about that next week, a little bit, maybe. What do the leaders try to do when Jesus is, is put into the tomb? Continue their conniving and their, and their trickery, rather than accepting what? Oh, we blew this. So how do you view the cross? Is it a defeat, or is it means to a victory? It wasn't a means of defeat. For Jesus going to the cross, it wasn't defeat. It was victory. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. So the question is, do you honestly believe that? And are you practicing it? Do you believe to follow in the steps of Jesus and to take up your own cross daily is to find life. To deny yourself is to find fullness. 
Or do you think that you got to be able to get everything you want so you can be satisfied? I promise you, there is so much satisfaction that comes when you're willing to sacrifice everything. When you get what God has waiting for you, you'll find out that what you wanted was so far short of what God had for you. Which character in this account do you most resemble? There's a lot of characters. I'm not, I was going to put them all up there. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to put them all up there. We probably, re- we probably you know, reflect one of those guys or gals in there. And there were more than I even talked about, hanging out around the foot of the cross and that kind of stuff. Who do you, who do you resemble? Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for you are... God alone. There is no other God but you. And again, you have planned the cross from before time began in order that you might be able to demonstrate to us your great love, your great commitment to us. Oh, Father, you alone are worthy to be praised. Help us to be willing to offer our lives as living sacrifices to you, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed and renewing our minds, that we might have the mind of Christ, that we would put off strife and vainglory, that we would consider the value and the needs of others being more important than our own, that we would be willing to take up our cross daily, denying ourselves, not looking to the world for satisfaction, but earnestly, earnestly, earnestly yearning for the satisfaction that comes from you. May you be magnified. May you be glorified in each of our lives individually and in our assembly as a whole. Lord, if there is anyone here today who has never given their life to you, Lord, I pray that you would work that upon their hearts and they would call upon your name and be saved that you would receive the glory eternally in their lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.